the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. We need only to have you call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, it's Tuesday, so we don't have anything to announce. So let's go right to our phone calls. We've got Horatio calling from San Marcos on line one. Horatio, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Rod. A question. Can a Christian... Vote pro-choice. Wow. Um, I'm going to answer the question two ways, Horatio. One, a Christian can because I know they do. I know Christians who have voted for pro-choice candidates, and I call them pro-abortion candidates. On the other hand, it is really difficult for me to understand how any born-again believer could uh, vote for any candidate or platform that endorses the murder of the unborn. So uh, I, I don't want to be naive, Horatio. They do. I, I know Christians who vote um, um, for pro-choice candidates, and uh, it, it saddens me. Um, they will justify it by saying, well, we're not one-issue voters. There's more things that are important. And while that's uh, got a grain of truth in it, to support the murder of the unborn is to me unconscionable. And that's the case. So uh, I'm going to leave that the answer to that question to, to between them and the Lord. He knows their hearts. And every one of us is going to have to stand before Jesus and give account of uh, the choices that we make. And this is a choice that I think would displease the Lord a great deal. So, Horatio, I don't want to be a judge. Uh, I can't judge somebody's heart. But this is an issue that, to me, is really, really clear-cut. So my initial reaction is no, but then I know Christians do. Thank you, Horatio. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's a question from Henry. He says, if someone believes in God but not the Holy Spirit, is he really saved? Henry, uh, this is one I can be really definitive on. You can't change God. Uh, God is one person, uh, one deity, one being, manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, Jesus the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So if someone who is a Christian or says they are a Christian, but I don't believe in the Holy Spirit, what they're doing, Henry, is they're changing the nature of God. They're changing, attacking, really, the character of God. 
and they've got a false god. So any god that leaves out the Holy Spirit is not God. Now, let me make one exception here. There are lots of people when they first get saved who struggle over the three-in-one concept. They say, well, how can he be one, and then how can he be three? Um, um, and, and, and I understand that. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when you've surrendered your heart to Jesus, and when, in fact, um, um, you're opening your Bible and the, the Holy Spirit is revealing to you uh, who he is, um, then I think I think we've got to be able to, willing to change our minds on this issue because it's so clear. So again, this is one of those things where you can't change the nature of God. When you do, you are guilty of heresy. So um, to believe in God but say, I don't believe in the Holy Spirit, disqualifies you from the essentials of the historic Christian faith. So Henry, I hope that makes sense to you. It's very important. Don't mess with who God really is. Here is an anonymous question. I attend a local church, but I'm not really involved because I don't like the way they spend money. Is it okay for me to give to God by doing nice things for people or contributing to homeless shelters? Um, you know, Anonymous, you're the steward of your money. You can you can give your money to whomever and however you want. I, I always think of uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the first century church when when they lied about how they were spending their money. And Peter said to them, why did you lie to God? Wasn't your money to keep? In other words, you could do with it anything that you want. In the same way, you can do anything with your money that you want to do. And of course, it's okay to give uh, to God by doing nice things for people or, or contributing to homeless shelters. But, and let me say but, I can't imagine why you would attend a church where you're not invested in the vision of ministry that God has given them. Now, I don't know what you mean. You don't like the way they spend money. Is it because you want control over your money or or you just not trust them with the money that you're giving them? Maybe they're spending money on facilities and, and, and other things and you think that money should go to the poor. Well, you need to go to a church that shares the same vision you do because giving needs to be done through the local church. That is the primary giving that we as believers do. Now, what you do with the money over and above that you give to your church, that's between you and the Lord. You can do with it what you want. As I said a moment ago, it's your money. But not to be invested in your local church is really problematic to me. You know, Anonymous, I've had people over the years who want to come in and say, um, well, well, I'd like to give money, but I want it to be used for this or I want it to be used for that. We try really hard here at Calvary Chapel to discourage directed giving. Um, we do it because we don't want people to give begrudgingly. We don't want people to give with strings attached. I have always been told by the Lord that, that when he gives, it, it, there's no strings attached. And I understand people have something in their heart. I understand that our flesh wants to control the way the money we give is spent. But where's the faith in that? You know, we've, um, we do a lot of things for our community. Free school, free medical clinic, family practice doctor's office. We have a house for women who are in dangerous or difficult situations. We want to give people a chance for a new start. If people don't want to give to those things, then they probably ought to find a church that has a different vision than the one God has given us. So we do a lot of things with the money, but but we try not to to put people in a position where they're controlling their money. When you give the money to God, it's his. And he's going to use it 99 times out of 100 um, to support your local church. Again, I want to emphasize, it's your money and you can you can use your money the way you want to. But if you're not supporting the church you're attending, then there's a disconnect there, Anonymous, and something that I think you ought to be concerned about. That's always the first responsibility to give through the local church. That's how stuff gets done. You know, all the stuff that we do here at Calvary Chapel is really expensive. Um, when I say really expensive, I mean it's really expensive. Um, if if people chose not to give to that, then there would be things that we couldn't do. And, of course, we believe that God has given us this vision and it's your job our job as a church to support it. 
340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Toll free, 877-630-KSLR. Evan asks, do modern Jews have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven? Uh, Evan, the answer is yes. Everybody has to believe in Jesus to get to heaven. Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, Peter said there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, Acts chapter 4. So, yes, everybody has to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. Now, the way you phrase your question, do modern Jews, is like, do they have a special deal with God? No, everybody has to believe in Jesus Christ. Evan, a, a perfect example, Romans chapter 9, the first four or five verses. Paul, who always had a heart for Jews, you know, he always believed that God would use him to win Jews. And God said, no, 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 I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Um, in Romans chapter 9, he says, basically he affirms it with a triple oath. Uh, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. And then he says something astonishing. He says, I would give my place in heaven if only my brothers, the Jews, would believe. Now, as astonishing as that is, we know it's true. It was written by the Holy Spirit pushing the pen of Paul. And what that means is this was a man who so had a heart for his people, the Jews, that he was really willing to change places with them. Now, he couldn't do it. He knew it wasn't possible. But that's how important it is. So uh, he wouldn't have written that if Jews had a special covenant that they didn't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. One of the really tragic things, Evan, there are evangelical churches that promote Israel, which is a good thing, but they teach that Jews don't need Jesus, so they support what they call a non-proselytizing approach to our Jewish brothers and sisters. What they're doing is they're condemning them to hell. Thank you. Let's go to Ryan calling from Bernie in line one. Ryan, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, how you doing? I have a question for you. Um, reading in Matthew uh, 21, when Jesus goes into the temple, um, the account there is, you know, he goes in there and said they created uh, his home as a den of thieves. But then you read the account in Mark, and it's a little bit different. Is there two different times he did that there, or is it uh, the same time? It's a little confusing on that. Uh, what's, what's your reference in Mark? Do you know, Ryan? I believe it's Mark 18 when he enters the temple and it was empty. You know, it's after he rides into Jerusalem, um, and they said the temple was empty, and he went home for the evening, and then it's kind yes. of something different and Matthew. So I was just kind of, I was a little confused on that. If you could explain that, I'll listen yeah. online. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it very, very much. The reason I asked your reference in Mark is Jesus overturned the 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 money changers' tables at the beginning of his ministry as well, and I wanted to be sure that you weren't referring to that. No, they are the same. Um, uh, incident. Um, what we get by comparing the gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, um, we get um, a, a, a better chronology. Um, the gospel of Matthew um, makes it sound like um, all these things happened um, on, the, on the same day. Um, but what happened was uh, he, during the night, he went to Bethany, stay, we would stay at the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Uh, we've got the incident of the uh, withered fig tree. Um, Mark's gospel gives us a, a different chronology. So uh, he went in to Jerusalem. He checked out uh, the situation. He would then retired for the night to Bethany. And when he came back is when he did all of the damage, when he um, uh, literally started his final time here on earth. So it's, it's the same account. We just get different chronology. It's not a contradiction. Um, Matthew places it in the order he places it in for a very specific reason. And... Um, Jesus, uh, uh, the story they're telling is different. Jesus is presented there as the Jewish Messiah. And and Mark uh, simply gives Jesus as the servant of mankind. Thank you. It's the same incident all along. And the chronology is more specific in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for that question. Kelly asked the question, in Daniel chapter 3, 
were the three men thrown into the furnace demonstrating weak faith when they said, even if he doesn't deliver us, we will not bow down. Kelly, no. What those three young men were doing is demonstrating the greatest faith of all. Uh, There's no question that their faith was excellent. Um, What they were saying is, look, I'm willing to die for my faith. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't. Now, I don't know if you're asking because you're in a church where they say your words have power and you can you can curse yourself with your words so you don't say anything negative. Um, that's nonsense, Kelly. Uh, these three young men, probably um, in their early teens, uh, had taken a stand for God, the, the true God, the God of the Bible. And uh, by standing up to Nebuchadnezzar, um, they were demonstrating that they believed God with all of their heart. And in fact, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar looked in the furnace and he said, um, how many people do we throw in the furnace? They said, everybody said three. And he said, well, then why do I see four and the fourth is like the son of the gods? Uh, Jesus was in the furnace with them and they were walking around. They could have walked out, but they chose to stay in the furnace with Jesus because being in the furnace with Jesus is better than being a free and not being with Jesus. So, no, they weren't demonstrating weak faith at all. What they were doing is saying, um, my God means so much to me that even if he doesn't deliver me, I'm willing to pay that price. But remember, the statement was, my God, our God can deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, it's not going to change my conviction. So, Kelly, this was superior faith that was being demonstrated in that furnace. Thank you very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, Is it sin to use recreational marijuana in a state where it is legal? Every time I get this question, and I get it frequently, I respond the same way. Of course it's sin, and you know it's sin. You knew it when you asked the question. See, the question isn't what's legal or not legal. The question is, are you sober? Do not be drunk with wine, but be ye filled continually with the Holy Spirit, Paul writes. So the idea here is that God doesn't want you to be impaired. God doesn't want you to have to take the edge off to chill out or to sleep. So no, it is not okay to use recreational marijuana any more than it's okay to get drunk. People say, well, being using pot's not as bad as drinking. Well, it's just as bad, sometimes worse. The minute you start smoking marijuana, uh, you are instantly um, high. That's the whole point of the drug. And Anonymous, you know better. Anything not of faith is sin. That's Romans 14, 23. The Holy Spirit is already speaking to your heart. You know better than to use marijuana. So stop looking for loopholes. It's a sin. Don't do it. Let's go to Robert on line one from San Antonio. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Um... I was just wondering if you have, and hopefully I'm not getting into politics here, but if you have any insight onto people who are using um, God's Word to try to make a religious exemption to um, getting the vaccine or wearing wearing the mask, you know, if you touch on, on both, I mean, the vaccine, I could maybe, um, I could maybe see their point. You know, they're taking something into their body. Um, some people have had an adverse reaction to it, but like the the, the mask. I mean, come on. You know, you're putting a piece of cloth on your on, on your face, and people who are saying, um, "Well, it, uh, I'm covering the image of God. We were created in the image of God, and we're covering that." And uh, or uh, I, I had one person quote a verse that said uh, um, we're supposed to come before the, come before God uncovered, and I'm pretty sure that's like in a form of of, of, of worship, um, you know. And it's like when you're when you're at your workplace, 
uh, in your workplace has asked you to wear a mask for the safety of others, you're not coming before God in worship, okay? So, so um, if you, you know, if you think there's anything in the Bible that says we should not wear a mask, or and then and then maybe on the vaccine, if you have any insights on that. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I can do that. And uh, let me just say that those kind of excuses were covering the image of God, or we, we can't come before the Lord uncovered, uh, or covered rather. Uh, that's dishonest. That's that's just not um, reasonable. Uh, and I think everybody knows it. It would be much better if people would just say, regarding the mask, look, I don't want to wear a mask, and masks aren't mandated. And since masks aren't mandated, I'm not violating any law. I don't want to break the law. Now, um, um, this whole thing with masks and vaccines has taken on a life of its own. And what I think we need to do is consider from God's perspective What's the right approach? Now, with regard to masks, and I'll get with the vaccine in a moment because I have much stronger feelings about that. Because we're not mandated to wear a mask, we have the right to make the choice of whether we're going to wear a mask or not. Now, if your employer says to work for me, you're going to have to wear a mask. Well, then you've got a decision to make, Robert. The decision is, do I want a job? If I do, then I need to wear the mask. If I uh, don't care about my job or if I'm willing to sacrifice my job, then uh, um, then, I'm, then I'll refuse to wear a mask. And I just think this is common courtesy. When you go to somebody's house, you follow their rules. If you have worked for somebody who wants you to wear a mask, and you don't want to wear a mask, then it's time for you to say goodbye to your job. Now, I realize in this country where we so value our freedoms that that rubs people the wrong way. However, this is a place where we can trust God. This is a place where we can trust the Lord. If we are convicted that I'm not going to wear a mask, then we need to be willing to pay the consequences. I think, Robert, part of the problem is that we live in a culture where we no longer want to suffer consequences for the choices that we make. So if somebody asks me to put on a mask, I'm going to be flying out of here on Saturday, uh, and I will have to put on a mask in the airport and on the airplane. If I don't want to go, then I could say, okay, I'm not wearing a mask and suffer the consequences. What we want is we want it both ways, and we can't have it both ways. Let me now deal with the, the by the way, I don't, think, I don't think we're protecting people when we're wearing a mask. I'm, I'm not sure the efficacy of masks, um, uh, the information from the very beginning of this pandemic has been uh, inconsistent. Uh, out of the same mouths of people who are in leadership positions, masks won't help, masks will help, and then it seems like everybody has to toe the line, and, and I think that's offensive. But if you're going to go somewhere that you want to go, and the rules are that you need to wear a mask, you got to wear a mask. Regarding the vaccine, and very uh, much stronger feelings, um, I cannot believe that we live at a time where our leading officials are forcing us to put something in our body that we don't want to put in our body. And I think there's a time coming when if you don't want to take a vaccine, then um, you shouldn't take it, but you should be willing then to pay the consequences of that choice. Um, We have not given mandates or we've not given letters of exemption here at Coward Chapel um, because I think the only legitimate religious exemption uh, with regard to the vaccine is the testing with fetal stem cells. And there are a lot of people I know who simply don't want to use anything that that aborted babies, aborted fetuses were, were a part of. However, and this is the problem, fetal stem cells are used in the testing of almost every product that we use. Tylenol. I take Tylenol. Tylenol is tested with fetal stem cells. And there's so many other things. So I just think that we've got to be willing to be reasonable in this. And and whether or not you take the vaccine is a personal choice. And I believe that we ought to honor that choice. I was um, sad today because I was reading a a letter somebody wrote to me about 
about the vaccine. Um, you know, it's it's my body, and nobody can tell me what to do with my body. And um, um, in that same letter, there was a pro-abortion perspective. They're saying the same thing, and, and we're telling them that to kill babies is not it's more than their bodies involved so i think my my point is the same standards don't apply on both sides of the argument so i i am not an anti-vaxxer i want that to be clear i have been vaccinated for everything uh, from the time i was a little kid i was in the lines for the polio vaccine when we got it as a little kid in elementary school you know a thousand years ago uh, but but I just don't think that our, our our nation, it's hard for me to accept the fact that we live in a nation where our livelihoods depend on it, where we're told that we can do things and we can't do things. There's a lot of athletes now who are told that if they don't take um, the, the, the vaccines, they can't play in certain um, city-owned properties, um, meaning they're going to lose their livelihood. I, I just can't believe that we've come to that place. You can hear the music. That means we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Thank you for your calls, but we'd love some more. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jeannie. She says, I have a friend who always talks about us being image bearers of God And that guarantees that everyone will be saved. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Uh, Jeannie, one thing we know for sure, it doesn't mean that everybody can be saved. Now, that's the first time I've ever heard sort of the universalist argument based on the fact that we're all image bearers of God. That's not at all what it means. Now, in large part, there are two things that being made in the image of God um, means. Uh, First and foremost, it means, like God, we have a choice. We choose. Um, We can choose to live in heaven. That's by virtue of being born again. Or we can choose to be separated from God for eternity. That's by virtue of rejecting Jesus. So we have to make a choice. Just like we were chosen from before the foundation of the earth, we have to make a choice back. That's being made in the image of God. It also means, Jeannie, that we are going to live forever somewhere. We are infinite. Once we're born, we're going to live somewhere forever. While God never ends, neither will we ever end. The difference is whether or not we live with Jesus or live without Jesus. And that's really what it means to be an image bearer of God. But that is no cover for not believing in Jesus Christ whatsoever. So, Jeannie, thank you for the question. I hope that helps. Let's go to Thomas from San Antonio on line one. Thomas, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Mr. Arbaugh. How are you doing? It's good to it's good to uh, be able to speak with you once again, sir. Thank you, Thomas. Okay. I was reading today in the book of Psalms. I was in Psalm 119. And uh, what... I think it was like the first one or the second one, uh, I guess because they're like alphabetized, right, in Hebrew? Um, that's that's, so that's anyway, correct. So uh, I, I came across this one, and I forgot exactly uh, which one it was, but it referenced to sinning, and it referenced to First John 3, 9, and I was wondering if you can expound on that, please. Okay, can you tell me, you, you and you don't know which verse, but can you tell me what the verse in Psalm 119 says? It has to do with sinning, how we don't, like, we the iniquity that we have, we're, we're, no, because of God, he, you know, we, we, we're not sinning. So it references that first John 3, 9, and it, and it said that we don't sin, so I was wondering if you can speak about that. 
Okay, I can do that. Now, a couple of things. Psalm 119, Thomas, um, obviously it is the longest chapter in all of Scripture. Um, um, but, but the idea is um, it's, it, it extols the virtues of the Word of God. Um, one of the things that some and mentioned sin many times, but uh, one of the, the most memorable verses is, um, Lord, I've, I, your word have I hid in my heart so that I will not sin against you. And what the poet is, is, is declaring there is that the word of God will strengthen us, prevent us uh, from, from having to sin. There's no implication at all there that we uh, won't sin. We're, we're in these flesh and blood bodies, so we're going to sin. We're imperfect. But but the psalmist is saying, look, if you hide God's word in your heart, and that's a, a, a veiled a reference to memorizing the word of God, uh, just, just letting the word of God dwell in your heart. Um, because when you're tempted, then you'll have the ability to fight. So, uh, I don't know why they would connect it with First John chapter three verse nine. It says there, no one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he had been born of God. And you have to understand the language there. First um, John is all about fellowship, and and he says that if we if we continue to sin, that our fellowship with God is broken. And in First John three nine, the verse that you quoted. Um, what he's saying is, is uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase it in 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 English the way the 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 Greek says it. it. Says no one who is born of God will continue to sin. And I always add the word willfully. The idea is to living in a lifestyle of sin, because God's seed remains in him, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And and just the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in us precludes us from living a lifestyle of willful sin. First Corinthians chapter six and Galatians chapter five uh, references the same idea. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the idea here in First John three is if you're if you're willfully sinning and you know you're sinning, then what he's saying is that you're not really born of God. The Holy Spirit living in us would prevent us from being able to sin willfully against God. Later in this, he says, uh, we have an advocate. If we do sin, we have an advocate. Jesus in heaven, who pleads our case. He lives to make intercession for us. So the idea here is that our fellowship with God is cut off by sinning. Now, when we sin, all we have to do is confess our sins. This is 1 John 1, 9. That's to agree with God about sin, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, and our fellowship is restored. But but the connection between Psalm 119 and 1 John chapter 3, uh, I think is really a stretch, and I don't know why they would actually do it. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 10, I think maybe is the one you're talking about. With all my heart I've sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. That's verses 10 and 11. So I think that's the one that you're talking about, Thomas. But the connection to 1 John 3, that's a comment. 1 John 3, 9 is just a comment on willful sin um, rather than the occasional sin. Uh, I know there are some people that look at 1 John 3, 9 and make a doctrine of perfection or sinless perfection and and say, well, we can live perfect lives. We can't. As long as we have these flesh and blood bodies, the war. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he's very clear about um, um, his own personal struggle with sin. And I think if the Apostle Paul can confess that he struggles with his flesh, then we ought to be able to say, look, in my flesh is no good thing, but my flesh is still there. It's going to be there until we meet Jesus. Paul said, what I want to do, I don't do what I don't want to do. That's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. So Paul struggled with his flesh just like you do, Thomas, just like I do. The idea is that if we continue to sin willfully, knowing what it is, John is saying that the Holy Spirit wouldn't permit that. If he really lived in you, he wouldn't permit that. The conviction, the heaviness, the grief would be so deep that we wouldn't be able to survive. So, Thomas, thank you for that. I appreciate your call. 
Here is a question from Leslie. This is a tough one. Pastor Ron, how can I tell the difference between God speaking to me, the devil, or just my own thoughts? Leslie, there's only one way, and that's to know your Bible. The Word, the Word, the Word. You know, First John chapter 4, verse 1 says, uh, Brothers, test the spirits, because not every spirit is from God. And the truth of the matter is, no matter what we're seeking God about, there's all kinds of different voices screaming at us. Whether it's the devil saying, do it, do it, do it, or, or the world telling us, no, this is right. Uh, we've got to know the Bible. We've got to know the Bible. And we know the devil wants to destroy us. Um, we know God wants to speak to us. And discerning the difference is going to be connected to how well you know the Word. You see... To test the spirits, we've got to know who God is. We've got to know what he's already said. Let's say if you hear, if it's your own thoughts, let's just say, and I'll give you an example that's happened here recently, not too long ago. Uh, somebody uh, told me that, um, that uh, God brought a, a man into their life, and this man was not a believer. And I said, that wasn't God. Well, I'm sure it was God. I was praying, and I'm sure it was God. No, it's not God, because God wouldn't contradict himself, and he says in his word not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. God loves you too much to bring an unbeliever into your life. If you know the word of God, then your own thoughts or the enemy of your soul or the world that we live in, they, 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 you won't listen to those voices. So test the spirits. The only way we can do that is in the Word of God. Now, let me also say this, Leslie, and and this is why I said this is such a tough question. There's a lot of times, a lot of times in my life where the devil can sound pretty authentically like the Lord. I think that's his intention. And he tries to confuse and that's why there's times, especially when we're seeking answers on things that aren't specifically covered in the Word, that's why we've got to be careful and slow down and not be in a rush to make those decisions. And I know the Bible pretty well, and so when when I'm, I'm hearing something from my own heart or hearing something from the enemy, uh, usually it's pretty easy to tell, but there are some times... When I don't know for sure, I'll give you an example. I won't be specific because this is something God's dealing with me on. Um, I want to put this carefully. I God's asking me to do something. And um, I sort of convinced myself, I, I, I really thought it was the Lord, but I sort of convinced myself that uh, waiting for a specific thing to happen would be the best thing. Uh, I, I feel like that. I really believe that's what the Lord was telling me. Well, for the last ten days, the Lord's been saying, "You know that wasn't me. That's not the way I work. That's not the way I deal with you." So I've, I've been doing a lot of repenting and asking God to forgive me, Leslie, um, because I wanted to. I wanted to take the easy way out in this particular case. And God loves me so much, he's not going to let me take the easy way out. So um, I, I just think you have to know your Bible. If you don't know, if you're not in the Word, now it doesn't mean you've got to know it, you've got to be a theologian, or it doesn't mean you have to memorize or anything, but you put the Bible in and God will use what's in there. It's living and active. God will use what's in there to confirm what he's saying to you or to help you discern that what you're hearing is or is not from him. So I hope that makes sense to you, Leslie. It's really difficult. And and faith is always in the mix. You've got to believe. And if the Lord's telling you to do something, and if your heart is right, but if the timing is not right, he'll stop you. He'll slow you down. So know your Bible, Leslie. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from uh, Grant from our email inbox. Why do we place an overemphasis, excuse me, 
Why do we play, I'm sorry for the head clear my throat. Why do we place an overemphasis on the prohibitions and underemphasize on the privileges of God? Grant, I'm not sure really what you mean by the question. I don't think we overemphasize the prohibitions, nor do we underemphasize the privileges or the freedoms or the blessings of God. I think that's one of the most beautiful parts about our Bible. I think we open it and it gives us this wonderful balance of both things. Um, it's one thing to say God loves you. He wants you to be happy. Uh, God has blessed you in the heavenly realms. We're more than conquerors through him who love Christ. But but it's one thing to say that and 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 ignore those passages of Scripture that tell you the things that we do that will disqualify us from being in those places of victory. So I'm not quite sure what you mean, Grant, but if it's that we focus on the do-nots instead of the do's, uh, I don't think that's the case. One of the wonderful things I've been blessed by with the Lord uh, here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio is we teach through the Bible. And we, verse by verse, we teach through the Bible. That means we get all of the, what you call prohibitions, and all of the privileges of God. We get them both. And in the same passage of Scripture, I'll do it. In fact, Grant, many of our Bibles are written. uh, The book of Ephesians is a perfect example of the divine design of God. Um, um, The first three chapters are all of the blessings, everything that God has done for us, the promises, the, the glory that awaits us. The second three chapters are how to apply those blessings in our lives on an everyday basis. How to practically work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I didn't say work for, but to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I I just disagree that we place an overemphasis on prohibition. I do think there are some Christians, Grant, who are tend toward legalism, who are always focusing on the you can't do this, you can't do that. But um, uh, I, I don't think that's typical of the church itself. And certainly, if you're in a healthy, well-balanced church that's teaching the Bible grant, uh, that's not the question at all. So thank you. Here is a question anonymously from our email inbox. Though woven together like a blanket, which should I esteem more? Loyalty above honor or honor above loyalty? Does it even matter as a born-again believer? Um, I think that's a blanket anonymous that you want to be under, no matter the cost. Loyalty to God. Um, Honor, integrity. Uh, I don't think you can be loyal to God without being a man or woman of integrity, of honor. So I, I I think both of those things matter a great deal. And I think we ought to esteem them. You know, the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And we're to pursue holiness because of that. And I think uh, holiness takes in a lot of those things. Um, Loyalty. uh, If you're talking about loyalty to God, um, you honor God with that loyalty. Now, if you're talking about, and this just occurred to me, if you're talking about loyalty to a person or loyalty to a company or loyalty to an institution, um, then then you would esteem honor above loyalty. Uh, I know a lot of Christians who make compromises, anonymous, um, uh, in their integrity um, because of their misplaced loyalty. And remember, as believers, if we're going to be loyal to God, if we're going to honor God, uh, we, we can't honor man when that request comes into conflict with what God has told us. So if you've got a dear friend and that friend says, I'm going to tell you something, but you've got to keep it a secret. And then he tells you something that you can't keep a secret. Then your loyalty to God wins out. Don't compromise your honor for the sake of loyalty to a cause or to a person. But if your loyalty is just to God and that's the way it ought to be, then um, loyalty and honor go together. I like the poetic way you put it, the woven together like a blanket. Um, I guess it would depend on the answer or the object of your loyalty. I, I hope that makes sense. It's the best I can understand the question. Thanks a lot. 
340-9585. Here's a question from Jordan. Why did Jesus cry at the tomb of Lazarus if he knew he was going to raise him from the dead? Uh, I actually had a question about this a couple of days ago, um, Jordan, and, and the reason he cried is because, excuse me, because of all the pain that he was watching, the mourning, the grief. He was looking at this funeral procession and, and all he could think about was um, um, the, the pain and, and he would think, this isn't the way I made this world. I created this world to be perfect. And look at the pain. Look what sin has done. And Jesus wept. Certainly he didn't weep because he was sad for Lazarus. That's what the crowd thought. Oh, see how he loved him, they said. But Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead. That was the whole point of him delaying his trip for four days. But he was crying because this isn't the way the world was supposed to be. Remember, Jesus is the one who created all things. How it broke his heart. I love that Jesus was emotional. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He wept as he looked out over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you'd only known, I'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Jesus' heart was broken all the time, and that's why he cried. What he created perfect, sin destroyed, and all of this pain was unnecessary. So that's why he cried at the tomb of Lazarus, Jordan. Thank you for the for the question. Here is another anonymous question. Will you discuss the difficulty of forgiving people as we are told to do and establishing healthy boundaries with those who have hurt you? Yeah, I think I can, anonymous. Um, when we forgive somebody, what it means is that we're no longer in bondage to unforgiveness. There's very little that damages the Christian walk more than being unwilling to forgive. We offer forgiveness to everybody. We, we no longer let what they did to us, the betrayal, we no longer let that inhibit or impede our walk with Jesus. But we still have the responsibility to forgive. If, if we are unwilling to forgive, Jesus said we're to forgive with the same measure that we ourselves have been forgiven by God. And when he asks us to pray that way, it's almost as though we're, we're, we're praying, Lord, uh, forgive me in the same measure that I've forgiven this person when you know you really haven't forgiven them. So you're really saying, Jesus, don't forgive me. So this is a, an issue in our heart that's got to be dealt with. It's got to be dealt with completely. And when you forgive people, it doesn't mean that... You've got to be their best friend. It doesn't mean that you you act like it never happened. People do bad things. They have to re-earn your trust. And I think healthy boundaries with people who have hurt you or betrayed you, I think, are important. And here's what you tell somebody. You say, look, I have forgiven you. And I no longer will carry this against you. But because of what you did to me, you're going to have to earn my trust again. I see this all the time in relationships where, where perhaps somebody's cheated on, on their wife or a wife's cheated on the husband. Well, God's forgiven me. Why won't you forgive me? Um, uh, you know, the truth is we're not God. We, we can't forgive and forget the way God does. We also need to remember that God knows the heart inside and out. We don't know the heart of the person. And we're to assume the best. We're to believe the best. We're to pray for the best. But to allow somebody who has a habit of betraying you or hurting you, to allow them to do that over and over and over again um, is damaging. So you simply say, I forgive you. I'm going to pray for you. I no longer hold anything against you, but until I can trust you again, I'm not going to let you get close. Paula is always saying to the women here, hands down, heart open. And that always hurts because that, that means we're vulnerable and likely we're going to get hurt all over again. But that's what we've got to be willing to do. Jesus was vulnerable for us. We have to be vulnerable. And to do that, we've got to be willing to forgive. So establishing healthy boundaries is okay. But remember, by faith, we've got to let Jesus protect us instead of trying to protect ourselves. I've had people who have betrayed Christ, they betrayed me, they betrayed our church. 
And after time, they want to come back. I'm not going to make one of them a pastor right away. Or I'm not going to put them in a, in a trusted position right away. I'm going to give them opportunities to serve and show that their heart really has been changed. That's healthy boundaries. So I think you can do both. But please don't misunderstand. We have the responsibility to forgive others the way we ourselves have been forgiven by God. Thank you, Anonymous. Hope that helps. Last question for the day. Another anonymous one. Is it sin to be gay? Is it a sin to be gay? Um, Anonymous, the answer to the question is, um, it's sin if you act on it. Sin is a verb. Sin is an action. So if you are tempted, um, same-sex attraction, and you resist that temptation because you love God, that's to be commended. Same-sex attraction is a fact of life in a fallen world. But that person who is attracted to the same sex uh, has to say, well, God, I choose you rather than fulfilling the lust of my flesh. I choose to be faithful and obedient to you. That is commendable. That is that is something that brings God great honor and great glory. Now, if by a sin to be gay, is it a sin to act out homosexually? And the answer to that question is 100% yes. It is always a sin And whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, it is always a sin to have sex with somebody that you're not married to, period. It is a sin to lust. It is a sin to give in to that lust. But if you're same-sex attracted and you say no, then Jesus is smiling at you and the power of the Holy Spirit is resting upon you. But but, uh, just the same-sex attraction in and of itself is not sin, Uh, But acting upon it always, always, always is. So I hope that makes sense. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, Please keep praying for Paula and the other pastor's wives while they're on their pastor's wives' retreat. She said they're having a great time and the Lord is ministering to them. God bless you. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.